This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Dr. Leah Ferguson from the University of Saskatchewan. Our podcast session, the first part, we discussed first self-compassion, eudaimonic well-being and flourishing in sport. We discussed the theories, the research findings and so forth. And so I think we managed to find like a good, um, build a good starting point to explore these concepts further. And so in the second part, we will continue. We will look a little bit into the gender dimension when it comes to well-being and self-compassion. And then towards the end, we'll be discussing my guest's second area of research, which is indigenous people's wellness. So very much looking forward to discussing both of these areas. So um, welcome to the podcast, Leah. It's, it's such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think we can pretty much jump in where we left off in the in the first part. And so with your co-authors, you have looked into self-compassion, one of your key research areas, both in women and men. And your own research, your earlier research, specifically often focused on women's experiences and young women in sport. But then uh, you have some recent work with your colleagues, which also looks at uh, self-compassion in men athletes. I'm really curious, how does gender then shape the experiences and expectations around self-compassion? And um, how should we consider that in our research and, and practical activities? Yeah, we, you're right, our, our initial research very much so focused on women and young women. And, you know, for, for myself, it was, it was, it was very true to me, you know, someone who identifies as a woman and knowing what I know as a, a previous competitive dancer, that was uh, an important thing, I think, for me to really stay true to, to my own kind of um, area. And there's so much research out there that boasts of the the challenges that women can experience in sport. I also think when we look at the larger literature of the the sports psychology literature, you know, the amount of research on, you know, typically white men as the population or the sample of interest versus women, there's still such a, a underserved as the focus on women. So that's, you know, some of the reasons for my own um, focus on that for sure. And but of course, we we knew the whole time we were taking this intentional focus rather than trying to to mix, you know, men and women in in our samples. We were trying to, you know, be very focused on on one gender, speaking in binary terms, at the time. And Kent Kowalski, whom I mentioned earlier, um, and one of his previous PhD students, who's now doing a postdoc at the University of British Columbia, Nathan Reese. Full credit to them for really 
sweeping us into the the focus on men athletes, which I think is we are definitely at a place where we need to be broadening our focus um, beyond women athletes for sure. So they're doing some really great work and something I really admire about the work that they've been been doing. And I'm just fortunate to kind of go along for the ride, to be honest, is um, they're, they're being intentional about it in terms of not just saying, okay, well now let's look at men athletes, but they're really intentionally going, okay, men athletes, sport experiences, you know, what's, what are the uniquenesses to those perhaps different from from women athletes sport experiences so for for them and looking at the literature masculinity kept coming up too so they really wanted to try and bring masculinity into their work to say is this an important lens through which we look at self compassion um, in sport um, so they sort of saw masculinity as kind of a, a crux to men's sport experiences in a lot of way. And what they found is that men athletes who align with the more traditional or hegemonic version of masculinity. So there's this more emphasis on what we might think of as traditional masculine norms in sport, like aggression and, you know, overly self-reliant independence, maybe even violence. So athletes who have more of that traditional masculinity have lower self-compassion in comparison to men athletes who have a more accepting, more contemporary version of masculinity that um, Nathan really framed as inclusive masculinity. So when we talk about inclusive masculinity, Nathan was referring to men seeing all representations of masculinity on equal planes or isn't this hierarchical approach to it. So I think that that was a really important um, piece to the to shifting the work to looking at men athletes as you were saying are there you know different shades of what we need to be looking at when we're talking about self-compassion with men versus women athletes and I think um, bringing in that masculinity piece was really really important and some you know a, a lot of similarities in terms of what self-compassion is linked with for women athletes in terms of adaptive outcomes, you know, autonomy, perseverance, sort of those those good psychological well-being outcomes. We're also seeing um, in the literature and the research with the men athletes too. Um, and then again, in some of the qualitative work that Nathan and Kent have been doing, the challenges or concerns around the language of self-compassion have come back into the discussion as well. So um, again, the men athletes really sort of saying how self-compassion is introduced is really important. The language around it needs to be there so that it can perhaps be something that is more um, accepted and, and embraced in some other qualitative work the men athletes were saying like, again, this is great. I, I do this. I want to do this, but I think I need to change how I'm you know, talking about it with my teammates or my good friends because their openness to it might be different than mine. So I think some really important takeaways have come from, from that work and somewhat linked with the needing the appropriate language when we're talking about self-compassion in sport is this idea about appropriate most education about what self-compassion is so that it's not being confused with something else. I think that that links with the language part so that, again, the athletes, you know, are, are talking about something that resonates with them and the context they're in um, and that they can also be properly implementing it through their sport experiences. It's interesting when we think about, you bring up the conversation or the point around gender and self-compassion, right? And 
so aware that in even the work we've been doing, it's been such a binary gendered perspective that we've been taking, right? It's been very, you know, samples of women, samples of men. Um, we haven't had much diversity in that social identity. And I think that that's a really needed um, area of research is to sort of expand gender identity um, of the individuals that we're working with. But again, going back to kind of the men versus women, I think it's also important linked with kind of with my applied experiences to not assume a gendered response to something like self-compassion, right? So we might just sort of following, again, almost traditional masculinity norms, assume that maybe men athletes are are against this. They're too rough and tough and they won't take that soothing, tender approach. So just as I've learned in my applied work, it's important to, to try and not have those assumptions going in and setting aside those pre-established uh, thoughts first. Um, so yeah, I think that there's an important work to do in terms of contextualizing self-compassion for diverse genders as well. Yeah, absolutely. And what you talked about towards the end is gender diversity and also mm -hmm. not ending up with the binary thinking that often we so easily then might end up reproducing stereotypes in terms of yes self-compassion is something that women are open to and men are not and yeah. that kind of thinking and in the same way as there are different masculinities there are different femininities mm -hmm. and we know that some women athletes are also very self-reliant, very tough, yeah. very self-critical and so forth. So really avoiding this, ending up using these quick stereotypes in terms of how we yeah. think about self-compassion and gender. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it, it requires a lot of sort of checking ourselves. And, and it's interesting, though, too, to think about the self-compassion that we've been researching a lot, the, the construct of it again, informed by Kristen Neff, it's this very soothing, tender, nurturing form or, or approach to self-compassion. And interestingly, Neff, in some of her recent writings, she hasn't looked at this empirically yet, but she's starting to formulate sort of the, the yang side to the yin of self-compassion. So if the yin is this soothing, tender, nurturing compassion, She's proposing this idea of fierce self-compassion as the yang, as one, a self-compassion that is more motivating, more protecting, um, more energizing form of self-compassion. So I bring that up when we're talking about, you know, the language of self-compassion and does it fit within the culture of sport? I think there's potentially a lot of promise to explore this idea of fierce self-compassion that is still the idea of you know kindness over criticism common humanity over isolation and mindfulness over rumination but kind of in response to the okay I'm being compassionate to myself what do I need next it's more of a motivating energizing protecting kind of fierce side to it and I really think when we think about the culture of sport, this idea of fierce self-compassion. And as you were saying, regardless of gender, right, we can just think of the sport context, um, that fierce self-compassion may have strong applicability there. So to be determined, we haven't started looking at it specifically yet, and, and Neff has not either, um, but certainly excited about it when we hear, you know, some of the previous and, and some ongoing concerns and hesitations around this softness and soothing side of self-compassion mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so this sounds like a certainly promising one new direction. Yeah. Hopefully mm-hmm. your your group and maybe some of the listeners will pick it up and we'll see some exciting research that coming up great. in the next years <laughs> as well. Yeah, and so more broadly, so you touched a little bit upon this gender perspective when it comes to self-compassion, but you have also written a chapter focusing on eudaimonic well-being, so like a broader idea from this uh, gender perspective or a gender lens. And so maybe could you talk us through a few ideas and if so, what could be some of the links that we could draw to uh, the physical activity and sports context mm-hmm. from this work? Yeah, thanks for, for bringing up that chapter. When we when I think of the, the time uh, shift that's happened in, in my you know still relatively short career, but that I feel like that chapter was written so long ago and it, I think it was 2016, so it was only six-ish years ago. But um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, my my colleague Katie, Katie Gunnell and I um, looked at eudaimonic well-being from sort of a gendered perspective. So we didn't do a you know a scoping review or a systematic review of the literature, but we just sort of did a little sampling of what are the gender differences that that researchers are finding um, on these different components of or dimensions of eudaimonic well-being. And I mean, we sort of came across what we expected, which was a mixed bag of, you know, some researchers finding, yes, there are differences between men and women on eudaimonic well-being. And there are differences on this component, but not that component. And then looking in other literature, we'd find the exact opposite being shown to us. So what, you know, previously women had higher levels of, you know, positive relations with others and personal growth. In the next study, there were no differences or the opposite differences were found. So quite a um, a tricky field of research to navigate to arrive at any solid definitive conclusions about differences in or gender differences in eudaimonic well-being. And Amy, maybe that's not that surprising. Again, I, I come back to the the point about, are we just looking at it incorrectly when we're trying to just look at these pre-existing frameworks of well-being and then going okay and are there differences between men and women you know maybe it's more about a more qualitative socially constructed working with women working with men working with individuals who don't identify as binary and diverse gender identities and exploring well-being what it means to them right so I I kind of switch back and forth between I have my tried and true theoretical empirical frameworks that drive my research for sure. And then I think about just the lived experiences, right? And if we want to look at, you know, diverse gender identities, maybe not trying to fit any gender identities into this pre-existing framework. And maybe it is more about looking more at the lived experiences to understand well-being within a sport context. So I think that's where my thinking has been going since writing that chapter is to look beyond this simplistic, it's not a complex framework for sure, but this simplistic look for differences on a pre-existing framework and more so about what are the diverse experiences of wellness and well-being in sport for diverse social identities. So again, moving away from the simplistic binary man, woman, gender identities, looking at other social identities too, right? So whether it's diverse cultures and looking at their experiences of well-being or flourishing in sport, um, looking at race and ethnicity, sexual orientation, even abilities, right? Uh, We are guilty in our self-compassion and eudaimonic well-being work of 
of working with able-bodied athletes. And there's so much potential and need for diversifying the the work that we do in this area to be more inclusive and, and look at diverse lived experiences. When we think about the core of self-compassion, even as being this resource to help overcome difficult experiences in sport, I think there's just so much potential for this resource for diverse groups of athletes that we're, we're missing out on. And um, one of my my current PhD students, actually, Abby Eakey, she is looking at or she's working with racialized women athletes in Canada to explore self-compassion in their sport experiences. And she's taking a really neat approach of focusing on the body. And so having self-compassion towards the physical self in sport and how that might be particularly important for diverse bodies in sports. So I think we're at the kind of the just starting to get into some really excited and needed research areas when it comes to diversity in terms of gender and culture, race, ethnicity, looking at whether it's self-compassion, eudaimonic well-being. Um, certainly both areas could could make some important strides. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned body self-compassion as a concept. So what does that mean? Yeah, and uh, exactly. Just throwing terms at you here. Um, it was one of Kent's um, master students, Katie Ann Berry, who was doing one of the, the first study did on self-compassion in the research lab, actually, who they sort of sat down and thought, okay, this idea of self-compassion, when we're talking about sport, there's such an emphasis on the physical self. Our bodies are moving, they're performing, they're competing, they're in motion. So there needs, you know, there's this focus on evaluation and comparison. And, you know, when we think about um, women, women's experiences, for instance, that, you know, competing sport ideal body versus societal ideal body, there's just so much complexity around the physical self. So they really wanted to start looking at something that they were thinking about the physical self and self-compassion and Um, They started looking at it within exercisers, and we've since looked at it within um, athletes. But this idea of body self-compassion as very analogous to Neff's idea of self-compassion, but focused on the body. So when we talk about body self-compassion, we're talking about appreciating the uniqueness of one's body. We're talking about taking ownership of one's body. Um, as well as engaging in less social comparison. So those those core components. And then there's kind of this hovering idea of the importance of others that can play a role in, you know, perhaps forming our body self-compassion as well that's out there too. But this certainly this body self-compassion is potentially being a really key, again, resource for women athletes. And, and Abby's looking at this within racialized groups and just trying to ex- not again, not trying to necessarily impose this framework um, for these uh, groups of women that she's working with, but just exploring is this relevance to your sport experiences? What does it look like to have body self-compassion in sport? Is it a concept that resonates? What what could it look like? What could it entail? And and going from there to sort of, I think, take a bit more of a diverse approach, not just to the research we're doing in general, but even to the, the construct that we're looking at. And Abby's really been formulating it as almost a, a coping resource or a coping process that can be utilized by athletes in, in sport when they, you know, experience various challenges around the body in sport. Yeah. 
And um, you started talking about diversifying research in terms of not thinking of gender only with this binary and having these other identities and bringing them all into this conversation and how qualitative methods especially are useful in terms of showing the complexity. And I think this will nicely bring us to your other research area. So well-being, wellness and indigenous populations, indigenous athletes. And so, for example, you have some recent work in the QSCH looking at flourishing in indigenous athletes. So maybe you can just talk us uh, through a little bit about this broader research, what you're doing with that and um, this particular study looking at flourishing indigenous athletes. Do you see something different from your previous studies with mainstream populations as well? Yeah, thanks for for giving me the chance to to chat about that as well. As I was saying at the the beginning of our conversation, I see my, you know, indigenous sport research as sort of this sweet spot between my sports psychology, you know, background training at kind of the the core of the work I do, and then my other area of um, indigenous people's wellness and kind of bringing those together through some indigenous sport research has just been an absolute. Um, privilege to to participate in um, and yeah I think my natural curiosities went from I'm doing all this work on flourishing among you know non-indigenous women athletes what does this even mean for you know First Nations Métis indigenous populations in Canada um, so through some of the ongoing relationships that I've been building with various Indigenous sport groups around my my city and, and around the country, really, just wanted to set out and have conversations about, does the term flourishing resonate? Does it mean anything? What, what might it look like for Indigenous women in sport to try and, and not necessarily compare and contrast, because I don't think that's even needed in terms of just honouring a concept like well-being or reaching one's potential in sport. I think there's merit just in that and for its own sake. So, you know, was going in not trying to take this model of eudaimonic well-being that has, you know, been driving a lot of my research with non-Indigenous women. I didn't just want to bring that in and say, hey, what do you think? I want it to be more reflective of um, these young women's just experiences in sport, more organic, I guess you might say. Um, so we had um, conversations, uh, sharing circles is one way that um, the young women felt was appropriate. So everyone in the circle has a chance to to share. Um, and then they did some artifact sharing too, which I thought was a really neat kind of method to bring into the research. But basically it was this invitation of if you have something in your life that represents what it means for you individually to flourish and reach your potential in sport bring it to this sharing circle and talk about it. So an analogy I can make is sometimes when we use say like photographs to bring in photographs into a conversation and talking about the photographs can bring explanations of perhaps more meaning. That was similar with the the artifact sharing, symbolic sharing. So, you know, we had some young women bringing in their hockey sticks or medals. Um, We had some uh, young women bringing in a water bottle and just spoke so wonderfully about the power of, you know, water and hydration and fueling the body. And so it was a really neat, powerful addition, I thought, um, but I'm getting sidetracked from your core question of what what did we find? Um, 
I would say some overlaps um, between what we found, again, not trying to compare and contrast, um, but just to, to answer your question, some similarities between my previous research with non-Indigenous women and, and this group of Indigenous women, which included Métis and First Nations um, young women, things like personal accomplishments, right? So setting and attaining goals, sort of having that, that purpose uh, in sport was reflective of what it meant for them to flourish in sport. Similarly, the young women in this um, research spoke about persistent growth. So again, very similar to sort of the personal growth side of of the work that I've done previously. So that, you know, constant push for self-betterment. So I think that some of these things are just tried and true for athletes when they're reaching their potential, wanting to set and achieve goals and wanting to constantly better themselves. Um, I think we'd be hard pressed to find any group of athletes who who disagree with that. Um, some of the uniquenesses that I feel like are exciting to to highlight for the the group of Indigenous women I worked with for what it means for them to reach their potential in sport. One was this idea of community support that kind of challenges, I think, what we might think about in terms of social support in the sports psychology literature. These young women were talking about multidimensional community support, um, and, and the word community being in there, I think, was a really important aspect for them. So it was about, you know, having support from one's family, from one's home community. So if they um, say we're from a reserve community, and also their sporting community, so just the larger community. And then the really neat thing was the reciprocation of the support. So for these young women, they were sharing with me that for them to flourish and be at their their peak in sport, they need to give that support back. So there was this beautiful sort of symbiotic reciprocation that that reflected to them if they were at their potential as if they were also giving that support back, right? So whether it was through through coaching or mentorship informally or, or, or formally, um, but just some sort of give and take of the support that they get from community. They also spoke about holistic excellence, which I thought was really um, wonderful. So they talked about excelling as a whole was required to flourish in sports. So not just about, you know, if we think about the per physical performance outcomes in sport and not even just the mental sort of wellness side of it but they were bringing in like spiritual wellness as well was an important part of what it meant for them to flourish with their potential that emotional piece needed to be there too so thinking about um, holistic excellence in order to flourish in sport and then something that I thought was really great too that defined their representation of flourishing in sport was this idea of you know, recognition is important, and that often stems from the outward recognition of achieving goals, personal bests, medals, whatever it might be. Um, but that it really needed to be in a kind of a soft and humble sort of way. And they really sort of linked that back in with the community support too, and that the, the community understands and there's that recognition and honoring, but it isn't boastful um, in, in that sort of way. It's much more a humble recognition. So, again, some similarities for sure. And then again, I appreciate you asking the question because I think there's some uniquenesses to honor. And again, I think in this research area, qualitative research, 
really reminding ourselves that, you know, this was representative of this group of young women that I had the honor of working with could be totally different for another group of, you know, young women, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, diverse cultures that we sit down and have those conversations with. Yeah. And I started the question in terms of what was different, but I so fully agree with you that it's such an important, valuable goal for us to try to understand phenomena from participants' own point of view, especially when they are from a different culture from your own. And all these conversations in cultural sports psychology as well in terms of not not just importing concepts that are used in mainstream Western sports psychology and then just seeing that, yeah, that fits there and that fits there. So what you're telling me is that your participants here were bringing in a much more relational and a much more than also spiritual notion of flourishing than what we might be having in our, in our frameworks that we use. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, mm-hmm. that's a great summary. Yeah, and how you talked about using methods that are coming from participants' own culture in terms of what yeah. what's familiar, what they they like to use and and I think these are like important points for all researchers especially when we have a cultural group that is somewhat different from our own yeah yeah I think that's a really important point and you know we think about um, you know using appropriate methods and I always like to think about you know what's what's meaningful coming back to the meaningfulness in sport what's meaningful for the the folks that you're working with and never trying to assume that I know the answer to that, right? So it's, as you were saying, Mira, it's all about relationships and and building those solid relationships and working with, um, for myself, working with the Indigenous groups that I've been able to work with and saying, you know, what's going to resonate? What's going to work for you as a method? And here's some options, but there's options that maybe I don't even know about. And I think of um, Dr. Uh, Tricia McGuire-Adams, who's at the University of Ottawa, who does some like really inspiring um, Indigenous methodology work, um, particularly within the context of sports. So I always think of, you know, folks like her, uh, who I think are really guiding the the research in this area in terms of, of methods. And we're talking about research with Indigenous peoples in sports. And I mean, I'm also mindful of Dr. Tara Lee McHugh at the University of Alberta, who um, is not Indigenous herself, but is an ally and, you know, is is a mentor to me in this area and has instilled in me those beliefs of relationships and working with the community and letting them guide, you know, the research question and what methods we want to be doing and not just doing research for the sake of research, that it really needs to be culturally meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing these reflections. To finish up and before I let you go, I think it would be wonderful to hear what are the current projects that you're working on and what are we going to read from you in the next few months and couple of years maybe. Yeah, I, I'm you know happy to say that this work, all of this work continues and I'm so um, fortunate to, to work with wonderful colleagues and students and community partners uh, in these areas. And we've recently received a a grant to going back to the focus on on women athletes to really dive into learning about how 
women athletes prefer to learn about self-compassion. So as the area grows and Kristen Neff expands her own, you know, repertoire of ways to practice self-compassion, there's a writing activities and using cue words and guided meditations and affectionate breathing and compassionate imagery. There's so many practices out there. And we kind of going back to the idea of just hearing from the individuals themselves we're sitting down and chatting with them to these young women. What, how do you prefer to learn about self-compassion? Are there exercises that resonate with you more? Does one modality, um, you know, does a smartphone um, app uh, intrigue you or is it in-person dialogue in a group setting? Like there's just so many options out there. So we're really sort of taking it from the ground up to then um, follow up and and work with them in developing um, resources that, um, they feel would would be the most impactful for them. And then we're starting to look a little bit too with coaches. So uh, some of my some of my colleagues overseas are, are starting to look at that as well. And that's definitely just as we needed to make that shift from looking beyond just women athletes, we need to look beyond athletes to think about the larger sport culture as well. So looking at self-compassion among coaches and um, you know what benefits might that have for coaches. Um, what's the best, what are the ways to, you know, teach coaches to be more self-compassion? What's the, if we say trickle down effect onto the athletes. So definitely expanding the horizons a little bit to beyond the athletes and looking at the larger sport context. So sounds like these projects will certainly keep you busy (laughs) also in the future. I'm thinking, wonderful, which is great. So I mentioned already, I'll link a few things that we've discussed. uh, in our talk in the show notes, for example, the Curacy article was from last year. So the details on on flourishing and Indigenous women athletes can, can be found there. And so thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, it was my absolute pleasure. Thank you for the warm invitation. It was great to virtually meet you. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.